We're going to resume in John chapter 20. If you have a Bible, please open there. And uh, there should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits. Feel free to grab one either now or later, or you can access those online if you uh, have a uh, computer device. Appreciate your prayers for me and that I'm going tonight to California to be with my dad who uh, fell and uh, had some bleeding on the brain and he's not doing real well. And I'll return, Lord willing, early Wednesday morning. So appreciate your prayers there. We come to uh, John chapter 20, I mean chapter 12, verse 20. And... uh, down through verse 24. I was going to go through verse 26, but I think as you'll see from next week's sermon, there's far too much here to cover in one one fell swoop. So just down through verse 24. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Years ago, when the uh, Church of the Open Door met down in downtown Los Angeles, it was a great historic church. You might remember J. Vernon McGee was a well-known pastor there. But uh, when, it, when it was there, I heard that if you went up and stood behind the pulpit, you gazed out into this massive auditorium, And not only was there the ground floor seats, but then there was a huge balcony, and then there was even a second balcony. And uh, I never stood there, but I was told that if you did on a Sunday morning when the place was filled with people, it kind of swelled your heart with uh, a feeling of importance, you know, that, wow, all of these people came out to hear me uh, preach. But then, just as your ego might begin to inflate, you came crashing down to earth, as you glanced down at the pulpit, there was a small plaque affixed to the pulpit with the words of our text in verse 21, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We didn't come here to see you. We didn't come here to hear all about your eloquence and all your brilliant learning and all of that. We want to see Jesus. And, you know, those are appropriate words for every preacher to remember every time he steps into the pulpit. And also, I would urge, those are good words for every one of you to remember every day that you walk with the Lord. Um, in uh, 1 John 3.2, John tells us this, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And so John is saying, if I understand that correctly, the instant we see Jesus, there will be instant transformation in our lives. That experience of seeing Jesus in all of his glory is going to change us. Now, 
in this life, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we, we see through a mirror dimly. We, we can't get that full unhindered vision of Jesus quite yet. But still, the more we see his glory now, it progressively changes us into his image. And Paul states that in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, But we all, with unveiled face, and he's contrasting us with Moses, who used to veil his face, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so there is this transforming power that comes when God opens our eyes to get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And so the question then is, well, great, how do we do that? How do we see Jesus in all his glory now? And the second question, then what difference will seeing that glory make in our lives? And that question we'll see, is answered in verses 25 and 26 that we'll look at next week. But this week, I want to focus on how do we see Jesus and his glory now. And our text tells us, very simply, to see Jesus and his glory, look to the cross. Look to the cross. The Greeks come and ask to see Jesus He announces that the hour has now come, and as I'll explain, he's referring to the hour of the cross. In verse 24, Jesus is the grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies so that it might bear much fruit. And then in verses 25 and 26, as I said, Jesus applies uh, that verse to us, that we also, like him, must lose our lives in order that uh, we would bear much fruit, but as We'll see in verse 26, there are great rewards for those who do. Now, it's kind of an interesting text that we come to for several reasons. First of all, it's sort of unusual to find some Greeks, that it would be Gentiles, coming up to a Jewish feast, the Feast of the Passover. Probably they were proselytes to um, Judaism, and so they're coming to worship with uh, a sea of Jews, probably a million Jews, flooding into the city for this great festival. Um, And uh, it's kind of odd, too, that John tells us they ask to see Jesus, and then they pass off the scene, and we never find out. Did they? I I don't know. Did they see Jesus or not? They asked the question. I kind of have a hunch they probably did, but John doesn't record that. Um, And he uses their request to turn the corner toward the cross. Another kind of interesting feature about the text is Philip seems confused. They come to Philip. They ask Philip to see Jesus. And rather than saying, sure, come on, he he goes and talks to Andrew. And they confer together. And then the two of them go and talk to Jesus about the Greek's request. And then the other kind of interesting thing about the text is it's not immediately obvious how Jesus' reply relates to the Greeks' request to see him. And so we'll, we'll look at that a little bit. But one thing is clear, and that is that Jesus sees this moment as a pivotal change in his ministry. Up till now, 
there has been this repeated theme. We've seen it in John's gospel. Jesus' hour has not yet come. Uh, we saw it first back in chapter 2 where Jesus' mother comes to him at the um, uh, wedding in Cana of Galilee and says they have no wine. And Jesus replies, uh, that's kind of none of your business in effect. He says, my hour has not yet come. And then in uh, chapter 7, his brothers come and say, look, if you want to make a name for yourself, go up to the feast. I mean, do some miracles up there. And Jesus again replies to them, my time has not yet come. Then he goes up to that feast in his own time. And uh, it says there that some hostile Jews tried to seize him, but they were unable to lay their hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And then he keeps speaking at that same feast. And again, they try to seize him. But John says in chapter 8, they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. But now the Greeks come and ask to see Jesus. And in verse 23, he announces, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So why does he do that? What was the significance of these Greeks wanting to see Jesus that tips it toward now is the hour? Well, as I understand it, the answer is it signifies a turning point. The Jews have, for the most part, officially rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They have turned away from him. They don't want the kind of Messiah that he is uh, proclaiming himself to be. And uh, so now the gospel will go out to the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and salvation will now be proclaimed to the whole world. And that worldwide scope of the gospel has been telegraphed to us at several points leading up to this in the Gospel of John. One is the very familiar John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then in verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world, there's that phrase again, uh, to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then we saw it again in chapter 4 and verse 42 where Jesus has gone into the village in Samaria after meeting with the woman at the well. And uh, the Samaritan people tell the woman, uh, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. And so... In those texts, world means not the Jews only. And so the gospel has come to the Jews first, but they have largely rejected it, and now the message is going out to the whole world. If you'll remember our uh, study in Romans, uh, which we did just before John, you'll recall that that's the whole point of Romans 9 through 11, as Paul is explaining why did the Jews reject Jesus if he's their Messiah, and uh, is, is there a future for Israel and all of that. So he explains that in those chapters. We also can see Paul practicing that very thing in Acts chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, where the Jews reject him. He kind of shakes out his garments against them and says, all right, now we're turning to the Gentiles. 
And uh, so that was the same principle here. Now, John makes this point in a rather subtle and skillful manner. First of all, he contrasts the Pharisees in verse 19 with the Greeks in verse 20. The Pharisees were the religious leaders in Israel. They should have welcomed Jesus as their Messiah. They knew the scriptures. They knew uh, all of the promises God had given about the Messiah. But instead, they reject him, and now they're seeking to kill him. In contrast to that, here are the Greeks saying, we want to see Jesus. And they're wide open. They want to uh, see the one that they believe is the Savior. And so John wants us to see that the Jews' rejection of God's Messiah did not thwart God's plan in the slightest, but rather it means good news for the world. And Paul says the same thing in Romans eleven fifteen. Another way that John makes the point is that he reports the frustrated words of the Pharisees in verse 19. Uh, as the crowds were shouting Hosanna as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey's colt. In verse 19, the frustrated Pharisees say, You see that you're not doing any good? Look, the world has gone after him. And John is using irony there, saying, Yes, you got it right, guys. In fact, that's exactly what's happening. The Jews have rejected him. Now the gospel is going out to the entire world and uh, everyone who seeks the Savior now can come to him. Two truths this morning I want to draw from these verses. The first one is that God's ultimate aim in history is to glorify his Son. Jesus says in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. As you know, Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Uh, Leon Morris says it had overtones of his deity and undertones of his humanity. And then Morris adds, it was a way of alluding to and yet veiling his Messiahship. For his concept of the Messiah differed markedly from the view commonly held. And then he adds, that in John's gospel, he says, this term is always associated either with Christ's heavenly glory or with the salvation that he came to bring. Now, last chapter, when Jesus deliberately stayed in, uh, out in the wilderness area where he was, when word came to him that his friend Lazarus was sick and dying, uh, Jesus explained in verse 4 of chapter 11, this sickness is not to end in death, but it's for the glory of God that the, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And as we saw, that's a remarkable statement of Jesus' deity. It means that to glorify the Son is tantamount to glorifying the Father because they are equal as God. But glorifying God was Jesus' aim in all that he did. Um, God's glory refers to his essential and intrinsic splendor. It is displayed in all of his attributes. It is displayed in all of his deeds and all of his works. And uh, since God's ultimate aim is to glorify uh, himself through his son, the Westminster Shorter Catechism has it right when it says, our chief aim is to glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. But back in John 5, 22 and 23, Jesus made another statement that I believe would be blasphemous on the lips of anyone who is not equal to God. By the way, I, I've been exchanging letters with a Jehovah's Witness man in Georgia who uh, wrote and said he really likes my sermons online. They've helped him. And then he's proceeded to try and convince me that Jesus is not God. And so we've traded back and forth about three letters now. And I just keep hitting him with, you're not saved. You know, you need to repent and, and acknowledge Jesus is God. But this is one verse or one uh, passage in John 5 where it's just so obvious. Jesus says this, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Can you imagine any mere man or even any created being, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say that he is, making that kind of radical claim? That would be blasphemy. He goes on, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Then in his prayer, just before he goes to Gethsemane in John 17, 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then down in verse 5 of that same chapter, he adds, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Again, he puts himself on the same level as God, uh, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Uh, the Apostle Paul does the same thing in elevating the glory of Jesus. Um, in Philippians 2, that well-known chapter about Jesus humbling himself, becoming obedient even to death on a cross, Paul adds in verses 9 through 11 there, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow of those who were in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord is a title of deity again. Jesus is Lord. In Ephesians 1.10, Paul says that God's eternal purpose is the summing up of all things in Christ. And in Colossians 1.18, Paul said again that Christ will come to have first place in everything. Um, in Revelation, near the end of that book, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, John gets the vision of the new Jerusalem. And he says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He mentions them both again in the same breath. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so throughout eternity, it means we're going to be living in the, the glow of the glory of Jesus Christ and God the Father, uh, the Lamb who was slain for us as we sang. And I think the application for us is pretty clear. Paul states it, though, in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, whether then you eat or drink, those are pretty common activities, right? Or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. Let me state it negatively. If you're doing anything that doesn't glorify God, and that means to make God look good as he truly is, if anything in your life doesn't do that, don't do it. That's what he's saying. And the battle starts on the thought level. That's where we begin to glorify God, with our thoughts. You know, just yesterday, or Friday, we, Marla and I uh, went out to dinner, and they had one of those Flag Live magazines, and I was reading in it. And it may, you know, the news quirks, where they kind of poke fun at all the crazy news. One of them was poking fun at evangelicals. Under the title, Family Values, it said that a recent survey shows that 54% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admit to looking at porn once a month or more. That's atrocious. That is just atrocious. And guys, if you're struggling with that, you got to deal with it. Jesus uses radical terms. Cut off your hand. Pluck out your eye. You know, and he, he paints it in heaven and hell terms. So we've got to get Deal with God on the thought level. If you're looking at that crud, it's not glorifying God in your thought life. And then it spills out into other areas of your life. So talk to somebody, one of the pastors or someone, and get help if you need it. But there is victory over that in Christ. We don't have to be slaves to sin. Uh, So you start on the thought level. And Thoughts, by the way, include your attitudes. And let me just give you a hint. Grumbling does not glorify God. Okay? And there's so many Christians, grumble, 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 you know, about anything and everything. Thankfulness is what glorifies God. The Bible is so clear on that. We are to thank him in everything. We are to be joy-filled people because our hope is in him. And uh, it's usually the little things where I grumble, you know, a slow driver in front of me. I'm late. Get out of my way. Grumble, grumble. Instead of just stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need to give thanks to God. I got a car. It's not getting blown up, you know. I mean, there are so many positives we could focus on. So you start with your thoughts. It moves into your words. Again, husbands, wives, do your words tear down or build up? Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, don't let any rotten word come out of your mouth, just words that build up the other person. And you're going, yeah, but they deserve, yeah, but he says to give grace to those who hear. Grace isn't deserved, is it? Grace is undeserved. So our speech should be gracious speech. And then, of course, our behavior, it flows out from there into our behavior. Think through this week. Did your behavior make God look good? So that others went, Wow, that person's different. They got something I need. That's the idea here, is to glorify God. And since God's aim in history then is to glorify his son, our aim in our history should be to glorify his son in all that we do. That's the first truth. God's ultimate aim in history is to glorify Jesus. Secondly, the cross then reveals God's glory in Christ. As I said, when John says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's referring to the cross. Uh, The same is true in John 17, 1 that we looked at. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. It's referring to the cross, 
that is looming right in front of him. And so Jesus glorified the Father, and the Father glorified Jesus in Jesus' death and, of course, resurrection. They say, well, how did that happen? At least three ways. We probably come up with, you know, several dozen. But right in our text, I see at least three ways. First of all, the cross reveals Jesus' glory by having all people come to Jesus alone for salvation. G. Campbell Morgan explained what was going on here this way. He said, Jesus, in effect, said, These Greeks cannot see me. There is only one way by which they may see me, know me, apprehend me, and that is through the hour that has now come, and that is through the way of the cross. And so we have to understand Jesus is the grain of wheat in verse 24 that falls into the ground and dies and thus produces much fruit. Um, Centuries ago, Augustine explained, he spoke of himself. He himself was the grain that had to die and be multiplied to suffer death through the unbelief of the Jews and to be multiplied in the faith of many nations. As all of you who are gardeners know, if you keep a grain of wheat or any seed on your shelf, it doesn't do anything. It just sits there all by itself alone. It's when you put it into the soil and that outer kernel, so to speak, rots or dies and falls away, then it produces, uh, through the life that is in it, many, many grains of wheat as the plant grows up and produces more and more wheat. And so the picture is that through the cross, the gospel has been opened not just to the Jews, but to all people. And that's why most of us are here this morning, because I would venture few of us are of Jewish descent. Now, Jesus is the Savior of the Jews first, but then also of the Gentiles. And uh, the point here is, whether Jew or Gentile, there's only one way to God, and that's through the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross for us as sinners. Uh, You're all familiar with John 14, 6, where Jesus plainly said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Peter said the same thing in uh, Acts 4.12. He's proclaiming this to the Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus. He said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when these uh, Greeks come to Philip, He seems to be a little bit confused and not know quite what to do with their request to see Jesus. Uh, We don't know, by the way, why they came to Philip, except maybe his name was a Greek name. And John here adds that he was from Bethsaida of Galilee. That was a town way up north, bordering Gentile areas. So maybe they knew about him. We don't know. But before Philip goes straight to Jesus, it looks like he's kind of wondering, what should I do? So he goes to Andrew And they confer, and then the two of them go to Jesus. Probably, Philip's hesitation has to do with Jesus' earlier instructions when he sent out the twelve on a preaching mission in Matthew 10, uh, verses 5 and 6. He said, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
And so Jesus' mission was in line with the Abrahamic covenant. God told Abraham, it's through your seed, your descendants, that I'm going to bless the nations. So Jesus came to Israel. Israel rejected their Messiah. And now God is blessing the nations through the seed of Abraham because the seed of Abraham is first and foremost Jesus. But then in Galatians 3.7, Paul says that all of us who are of faith are Abraham's true children. And so as people come to faith in Christ, they go out to the nations with the message, um, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. And in the Great Commission, you'll remember how Jesus plainly commanded, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And Luke repeats that commission in a slightly different form in Luke 24, Jesus told the disciples that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And then in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, chapter 7, verse 9, John looks into heaven and he sees a great multitude whom no man can number from every people, every tongue, every tribe, every nation uh, that Jesus has purchased with his blood. And so... The way that the cross reveals Jesus' glory is people from every nation all around the globe can only come to the Father through one way. That is through believing in Christ and him crucified for our sins as as our substitute. Through faith in him, the way opens up to every person who uh, believes in Jesus. So the second way the cross reveals Jesus' glory is is by nullifying the boastful works of sinners. And this stands in contrast to the Pharisees here. The Pharisees, as you know, were notoriously proud of their good works. That was how they would commend themselves to God. I thank you, God, I'm not like these other men, like this publican sinner and so on. And here uh, you have these Gentiles coming. And Paul builds this argument extensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If I had time, I would read all of verses 18 to 31. But he shows there how God has set aside the so-called wisdom of this world in order that he might glory uh, and replace it with the glory of Christ and him crucified. He says this, just reading verses 22 to 24 there. For indeed, the Jews asked for a sign or for signs, And Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who were the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he goes on, and you'll recall, he tells the Corinthians, God didn't choose you because you were wise or noble or whatever, you know, because of anything in you. God chose the foolish and so on. And it's because if he chose us based on anything in us, guess what? We'd go around boasting. You know, I'm better than that lousy neighbor of mine because God chose me and not him. Uh, We're just inclined to pride. And so Paul sums up his argument this way, 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. But by his doing, not your doing, by his doing, You're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 
so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul builds a similar argument all through the book of Galatians, again, against the proud Judaizers. The Judaizers said, we believe in Jesus. Yeah, we just think you have to also keep the Jewish law and especially circumcision. And so they were boasting in their their works added to what Christ had done. And Paul argues there, well, if sinners can commend themselves to God by anything they've done, then God's glory gets diminished by that amount, and they can boast in themselves. And so his whole argument through Galatians is, no, you cannot boast in anything in yourself, only in what Christ did. And he sums it up at the end of the book there in Galatians 6.14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so what the cross means is God did everything for our salvation and we did nothing. He paid in full the debt that we owe. He satisfied God's righteous judgment against our sin. And so there's nothing we can do to qualify for heaven. The Bible simply says repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, and it even says that that repentance and faith are gifts of God so that none would boast, because God knew if I could boast in my repentance, I would. Um, No, repentance is a gift. And the whole point, I realize there are people that stumble over the doctrine of election, but listen, here is the important, practical, bottom line of the doctrine of election. Who gets the glory in your salvation? It's God. God gets it all. You get none. God chose you, and if he hadn't chosen you or me, I wouldn't have chosen him. I'd still be lost. And so it's about the glory of God in Christ on the cross. That's uh, how Jesus' glory is revealed in the cross. And then the last way here, the cross reveals Jesus' glory by being the supreme revelation of God's perfect love and his perfect justice. They, they meet at the cross. The cross showed God's love. Not just for the Jews, but as we saw in John 3.16, God so loved the world, all people. It reveals God's great love for us, Paul says in Romans 5.8, because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or John declares again, 1 John 4.10, He says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so the point is, Jesus didn't love us because we were worthy. Quite the contrary. He loved us in our sin, our degradation, our rebellion, our unworthiness. And so our response should be like Charles Wesley put it, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, that word propitiation there in 1 John 4.10 points to another aspect of God's glory seen at the cross, and that is his perfect justice, his justice. God didn't say, you know, I love you guys, and I'm just going to overlook your sin. Try not to do it again. Because if God had done that, he would not be perfectly holy. It would be like a judge 
Some guy has murdered your mother and he goes before the judge and the judge says, well, I know we all have our weak moments. Just don't do it again. You know, go on out the door. Try to be a good guy. We would all be outraged and say that judge is evil. He he is not upholding justice. And God is perfect justice. Every sin of thought, word, and deed must be paid for. The penalty must be paid. And Romans 6.23 is clear, the wages of sin is death. So God, to be just, has to impose the death penalty on every sinner, but he provided a solution. His son, who is perfect deity and humanity in one person, came, and because he is God, his death could atone for the sins of the whole world, and because he is man... He could be our substitute on the cross. Hebrews um, 2.17 puts it this way. It says, Jesus had to share our human nature so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Here's that word again. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that word propitiation, again, has to do with satisfying God's righteous wrath against sin. That's why Jesus abhorred the cross, because he knew that he would be bearing that horrible wrath of the Father for our sins on the cross. And so at the cross, Jesus did that on behalf of all whom the Father gave him. If you want to read um, a classic scholarly book on the atonement, None is better than Leon Morris's apostolic preaching of the cross. It's, again, a little scholarly. He has two whole chapters on the words for propitiation in the New Testament. And here's just how he sums up the whole argument. He says, Thus the use of the concept of propitiation witnesses to two great realities. The one, the reality and the seriousness of the divine reaction against sin. And the other, the reality and the greatness of the divine love which provided the gift which should avert the wrath from men. And so again, the cross glorifies Jesus by showing that in him, God's perfect love for sinners and his perfect justice in making sure that the penalty is paid come together uh, in Christ. And may I just say this morning... If you're not in Christ, you are under the wrath of God. John 3.36 says that. It's a frightening thing to realize. It means that if you died today, you would incur God's eternal wrath. Not a good place to be. But the Bible also says you don't need to be there. You don't need to be there because whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you can go out the door righteous before God Because the instant you believe in Christ, he imputes the very righteousness of Christ to your account, and Christ bears your sin. So, God's ultimate aim then in history is to glorify his Son, and the cross reveals God's glory by um, having all people come to him alone for salvation, by nullifying all the proud and boastful works of sinners against God, and by displaying God's perfect love and justice. I had another point that I had to cut out of the message because of sake of time, but I could also point out from our text, verse 24, 
how the cross reveals God's glory by uh, showing that Jesus bore much fruit through his death. Um, in John 6.39, Jesus said this, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And what that verse means is, Jesus did not die saying, Oh, I do hope that some will trust me and be saved. He died to secure the salvation of all whom the Father gave him. And he says, I'm going to accomplish that work. So the cross is effectual, in other words. Uh, That remains for another sermon. But anyway, the cross glorifies Jesus. And so my point is this. To see Jesus, you don't have to pray for some mystical experience, you know, where he appears in a tortilla or something. Uh, No, that's not the way to see Jesus. The way to see Jesus is to read the New Testament and the accounts of his cross, which take up the bulk of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and say, oh God, open my eyes to see the glory of Christ on the cross. It reveals Jesus' glory. Uh, And just meditate often on that truth. When you do, it will humble your pride. And for all of us, pride is our number one enemy. It is the biggest impediment I have to love God and to love others. You can't look at the cross and be puffed up with pride. Um, The cross will stir your heart for love and worship for Jesus. As you see what love he had to go to the cross for you. Uh, The cross will give you compassion and hope for sinners because Jesus didn't die for pretty good folks who qualify. He died for sinners. And so the good news you can bear to sinners is if you'll trust Christ right now, all of your sins can be washed away instantly through what Jesus did on the cross. And um, we'll see in our next study, too, how the cross transforms us to make us like Jesus so that um, others through us will see his glory through us. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Christ in the cross, that we would grow in that day to day, that we would never grow complacent in our Christian walk or smug or uh, just get our eyes on other things, but that daily Christ and him crucified him risen in glory, him promising to come back now in power and glory, that Christ would be our focus, that we would have eyes to see him through your revealed word, and that as we do, we would be transformed more and more into his glorious image. And Lord, as we um, now partake of communion, help us to see Jesus in uh, what he did for us, I ask.